This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is a science podcast for February 17th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, a gold rush for naturally occurring hydrogen. Deputy News Editor Eric Han joins me to discuss drilling for hidden pockets of hydrogen, which companies are just now starting to explore as a clean energy option. Next up, big plans for a mission to Uranus. Kathleen Mont is here with all the mysteries surrounding this distant ice giant planet. You may have heard of hydrogen as a source of alternative energy. And that kind of hydrogen that you've likely heard about is made through a process that requires some energy input, like splitting water. So it's not super green. But what if we could just get hydrogen out of the ground, like petroleum or gas? This week in Science, Eric Hand, he's a deputy news editor for Science, wrote a feature on drilling for hydrogen gas. This is a new option for energy that's really just now being explored extensively for the first time. Hi, Eric. Hi, Sarah. Why does everyone think of hydrogen as such a clean fuel? At its simplest, when you burn it, it just makes water. There's no carbon in hydrogen. So I've heard of hydrogen as a clean energy option before, but it doesn't come out of the ground. It gets made. You know, how is drilling different than making hydrogen through these processes that have been tried before? Is it more green to dig it out of the ground? That's the idea, at least cheaper and less carbon intensive. So all hydrogen right now is manufactured by humans, either in a dirty way or mostly in a dirty way. The green way to make hydrogen right now, so-called green hydrogen, takes renewable solar or wind energy, but that's really expensive. So drilling for it, getting this natural hydrogen out of the ground could be a lot cheaper. It's not easy to hold on to tiny, tiny molecules like this. Was everybody surprised that we would have reservoirs of hydrogen in the Earth? This definitely has taken the geoscience world by surprise. For more than 100 years, the oil and gas industry hasn't been looking for hydrogen, or at least they haven't been looking in the right places with the right tools. So where they usually drill is one kind of land formation, one kind of rock, and this is going to be somewhere else? That's right. Oil and gas explorers typically look in youngish sedimentary rocks where organic Mudstones or shale have produced oil and gas that then migrate somewhere into a trap, and that's what they extract. Hydrogen is going to be in completely different sort of rocks. The 
prospectors are looking to the some of the oldest rocks on earth where you have iron rich rocks in the basement that can create hydrogen through these water rock interactions. So is anybody drilling for hydrogen right now? They have found a pocket and they're trying to harvest it for energy. The one place that's probably closest to doing this or has at least demonstrated that this is real is in Mali in a little village called Burake Bugu. How much hydrogen are they able to extract there? Is it is it a big amount? Is it a small amount? I mean, what is it, what are they sitting on? That's what they're trying to figure out. I mean, they've shown for a decade now that they can power the lights in the village just through small amounts from some exploratory boreholes. But they think they're sitting on a large reservoir of hydrogen. And another important distinction from oil and gas is that this hydrogen could be renewable. It's made continuously in the moment via fast reactions, not like oil and gas, which takes millions of years to be created. You don't need to compress an animal and hang on to that for millions and millions of years. Correct. All you need is water and iron-rich rock at high temperatures and pressures. What do we know about the prevalence of this reaction? How often is it happening? How, you know, where on Earth is it happening? What do we know about production of hydrogen gas by Earth? This is the big question. Is there lots of this and is it economically exploitable? And one scientist at the U.S. Geological Survey is, is trying to answer exactly this question using some back-of-the-envelope models. He estimates that this is likely to be found everywhere on Earth, on every continent, and that there might be enough to satisfy society's hydrogen demand for thousands and thousands of years. Wow, that's a bold claim. How could we have missed that much hydrogen? Yeah, again, it comes back to this idea that scientists haven't really been looking in the right places. So what's interesting is that now that they are starting to look, they're finding it everywhere, not just in large pockets underground, but in these surface seeps. And the fact that these surface seeps seem to be ubiquitous just indicates that there's much more being produced at lower levels in a continuous way. So when we've talked about hydrogen as an alternative fuel in the past, there's kind of been this not just, you know, we have to make it, we need energy inputs, it can be a dirty fuel in, in different ways. There's also this infrastructure issue. How would you get hydrogen, either from the factory or from a mine, into people's hands? It's a gas. You have to compress it. You have to move it around. It's flammable. Is that a concern here with mining hydrogen as well? For sure. I mean, all hydrogen faces this problem. And, and this, this, in a way, is, is hydrogen's Achilles heel. It's gas that takes up a lot of space. You can't store it in tanks and cars. That's why storage containers would have to be even bigger than the big gas containers you see storing natural gas. So yeah, infrastructure, building pipelines from these wells to users is, is a huge issue. But a lot of people think you can at least start to look for consumers near the site of extraction. In other words, one of the biggest markets for hydrogen is ammonia fertilizer. And so you could imagine building an ammonia fertilizer plant right next to a big hydrogen gas field. What about an electric plant right by a hydrogen gas field? No one really thinks hydrogen is going to be used to generate electricity directly. People think of it as being used for heavy-duty, long-haul transportation, trucking, shipping, maybe aviation. They also think of it as maybe being useful in industries that need high temperature combustion, like steelmaking. 
and then its existing markets for, for things like ammonia fertilizer. And then fuel cells. I mean, fuel cells are another big use for hydrogen, and that can make electricity for fuel cell-driven cars. There's also fuel cells that work in sort of more industrial environments on a bigger scale. But no one is talking about generating electricity from hydrogen on a grid scale. Why is that? Looking ahead, most people think we can electrify something like 50% of all of society's energy use in the end. Hopefully that electricity will be renewable or low carbon. It's the other half of society's energy use, things like steelmaking, heavy-duty transportation, ammonia fertilizer, that's going to be really hard to electrify. There's just no good way of doing it. And it's exactly in these sectors that people are looking to hydrogen. We talked about this place where it's furthest along in Mali. Where are there suspected other large pockets of hydrogen gas underground? There's a big boom going on in South Australia in some very old rocks there. Some startup companies are excited about exploring in the Pyrenees between France and Spain. In the United States, there's one company that's drilled a well in Nebraska, of all places, seeking maybe to tap this ancient rift zone that brought these iron-rich rocks up from the mantle in the middle of the country. So one thing that you talked about was that this is renewable, that it's not just a pocket sitting there slowly dissipating. It's something that's getting renewed from the chemical reactions in the ground. But taking it further than that, there's a way of even renewing it more by feeding it with different substances. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. The key ingredients to make hydrogen are iron-rich rocks and water. And so you can imagine that if you had the right rocks, but they weren't saturated with water, with groundwater, you could imagine injecting water, stimulating these reactions, kind of similar to the way that geothermal energy is produced. But even better than that, not only could you stimulate these reactions, but maybe you could also inject carbon dioxide along with that water. And that carbon dioxide would then be mineralized and stored permanently as carbonate minerals deep underground. A lot of scientists think of this as you know, a big potential win-win. It would not only be a carbon neutral energy source, but potentially even a carbon negative energy source. So we've talked a lot about how this might be a very large supply. It's very green. It's going to tackle some of the problems we've had with not being able to get renewables into certain areas of our economy. What do you think are the big buts, the big question marks here that we need to look further into with science or that that we just don't know the answers to right now? There's a lot of buts. First of all, scientists don't know all the different ways that hydrogen can be made. They think that much of it is made through these serpentinization reactions, these water iron reactions, but radioactive reactions could also be an important contributor. Some scientists even think that deep-seated sources, hydrogen even from Earth's core, might be an important source. So there's a lot of questions about where this hydrogen is coming from and also how it's being stored. Hydrogen is a very slippery molecule. It doesn't like to stay put. It reacts easily. It gets consumed by microbes. Are there places where this hydrogen is being trapped and forming big accumulations that can be tapped economically? One worry is that even if the earth is making lots of hydrogen in this renewable way, one worry is that it's just seeping out in diffuse amounts everywhere all the time, but not being concentrated in pockets rich enough for exploitation. 
So we're going to see people trying to find those pockets and then monetize them or commercialize them in the next few years. That's right. I mean, there's a lot of startups out there right now, some going public, some seeking investors. I think this is a really exciting thing for business and industry, but also for science. Thanks so much, Eric. Thanks, Sarah. Eric Hand is a deputy news editor for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Kathleen Mont, a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. We talk about what a mission to Uranus could tell us about the formation of our solar system and all these exoplanets that we keep finding. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. There have been like 40 missions launched for Venus, more than 50 for Mars. Gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn have both had dedicated missions like Juno and Cassini. So going a a little further away from the sun to our solar system's ice giants, Uranus and Neptune, data is even more scarce. Voyager 2 visited them both way back, like 30 years ago. But since then, research on these planets has been limited to telescopes only. Kathleen Mott wrote a commentary piece in Science on a proposed mission to visit the ice giant Uranus within the next decade. Hi, Kathy. Hi. Why did you write a commentary piece for Science about this? This mission was recommended by the planetary science community as our top priority. So the science community understands it as far as planetary science community, but this is a mission, it's going to last for a very long time and it will inspire, we hope that it will inspire and involve and include generations that are yet to come. Students that are in graduate school right now could be leaders on the mission when it arrives at the planet. And our children today who are in preschool could be students working on that mission someday. So I think it's important for the public to learn about this mission and the role that they and their children could potentially play. I didn't realize how little love these two planets were getting until I started researching for the segment. I mean, only Voyager 2. It's pretty sad, but it's it's a complicated process to send a mission to another planet. So what are some of the broad questions a mission like this will address for going to Uranus? What kinds of things could we learn? One of the, the bigger picture questions that we want to explore with this mission is the, how the solar system formed and how it evolved after the planets formed. So there are actually a couple of theories now about how our solar system formed, how the planets got to be where they are. How does Uranus play into that? The giant planets and how they formed is really fundamental for the way that our solar system looks today. We have, to start with, two different theories for how the giant planets could have formed. One of them is 
when the planets formed, there was a nebula, a disk of gas and, and rocky material orbiting the sun. And one theory is that rocky material kind of built up and formed planetesimals that collected and formed this massive core that was about 10 times the mass of the Earth. And that was large enough to attract a large amount of gas from the nebula itself. And that's called core formation theory. So that's one of the theories for how the planets formed. And, and it took a long time with core formation for the planets to form. There's another way that planets could form, but very quickly, and that would be where this disk in orbit around our young sun has a instability in the disk that causes a massive amount of the solid and gas material to just collapse in on itself, kind of similar to how stars form. And that would create a planet with an atmosphere that has a, a different composition from the planet that formed through core accretion. This is also really important for exoplanets. Most of the exoplanets that we're able to observe are on the giant side. It's easier to see big things. So when we learn more about the giants in our solar system, we'll be able to figure out how to interpret what we see from giants that are, are in other systems, right? Yeah. And the lack of knowledge that we have for our own ice giants is actually a problem for understanding exoplanets and the systems that they exist in, because we don't really know what our ice giants are actually made of, whether they're icy or rocky. We don't know what their internal structure is like. We don't know how they formed, but we look at the exoplanets that we have discovered so far, and one of the largest groups of exoplanets that we are aware of are around the size and mass that our ice giants are. So we need to explore our own ice giants to get a better understanding of exoplanets that we've already identified. Very cool. What is the status of this mission? Can we say this is going to happen? This is funded? It's been established as the next priority. The community has sent a clear message to NASA that this is what we want for the next mission. Now, because these flagship missions are such a major endeavor, it's not something that NASA can just pull a little bunny together and and assign this task. They have to develop a program and they have to get funding specifically from Congress to support establishing this new major effort. And so we are at a point where we are waiting for NASA to get all of that in place to start this mission. One of the things that you mentioned when you're describing this mission is that there would be both an orbiter and a probe. What kinds of questions can they kind of address each one? What is the orbiter going to do at Uranus? The orbiter is going to explore everything about the system. It's going to take measurements of the atmosphere, looking for clouds, looking at the composition of the atmosphere of the planet, observing how it changes over time because it'll be able to orbit for a few years. It will be looking for seasonal changes because the seasons on Uranus are so weird. The planet is on its side. So northern summer, only the North Pole or the northern hemisphere gets sunlight. Could you describe how a season works on a planet that's kind of tipped on its side and the poles are kind of, they're parallel to the plane of the solar system? 
The seasons at Uranus are the most extreme in the solar system because it's tilted on its side. During equinox, when the sun is at the equator of the planet, the planet gets sunlight on it on the entire planet. So as it rotates through a day, every bit of the planet gets some sunlight. Just like here on Earth, almost every bit of the planet gets some sunlight during all seasons. What's unique with Uranus is that during the northern summer and the southern summer, the pole is pointed directly at the sun. So only one half of the planet is getting any sunlight during the entire season. Which is what, a quarter of 84 years? Yeah. Wow. So 20 some years. (laughs) When we had Voyager fly by, it was during a season where only one hemisphere was getting any sunlight. So the images that Voyager took showed almost no variability in the atmosphere. There weren't cloud features. There weren't the bands that you see at Jupiter and Saturn. It looked almost like a billiard ball. And since that time, we've made observations with telescopes here based at Earth. The Hubble Space Telescope has made some very interesting observations showing that cloud features formed as the seasons changed. That tells us that there's a lot of really interesting stuff that we're missing because we're only able to observe from this such a great distance. What are some of the other unique features of Uranus that will be explored by this mission? It's also going to be exploring the interior structure of the planet. Because we can't see through the atmosphere to a surface like we're able to do with Mars and other terrestrial planets, with Jupiter and Saturn, because we have had spacecraft able to orbit these planets, we've been able to measure the effect of the gravity of the planet on the spacecraft. And the way that the gravity of the planet affects the spacecraft is determined by the structure of the interior. Like if there's a very large, solid core in the middle of the planet, that will affect the spacecraft differently than a core that is kind of broken apart and has material diffusing into the atmosphere of the planet. And that's what's going on with the gas giants, right? We know that their core is not a giant monster inside of there. Yes, exactly. And this was a big surprise and it was a really exciting discovery. And it has left us with the question of whether the ice giants are the same or if they have a solid core and they're different from the gas giants. We should mention why they're called ice giants and not gas giants. We know that Jupiter and Saturn are mostly made of hydrogen, but the ice giants have a lot less hydrogen compared to other materials. So they've got a lot of water. There's a lot of methane. There's potentially a lot of rocks or rocky type material inside the ice giants, but we don't know that. Uranus also has rings, a lot of rings and a lot of moons. I I feel like we're still adding moons and we might add more moons if there was a mission that went there. Yeah. Recently, there has been news coverage about more moons being discovered at Jupiter. It's over 90 now. Something that's interesting about Jupiter and Saturn is that they have a whole bunch of really small satellites, and some of them are captured satellites that are irregular. And we want to know how many 
the ice giants have as well, because they formed in a different place in the solar system, farther out from Jupiter and Saturn. And we don't know if Uranus and Neptune were able to capture as many irregular moons. We know that Neptune captured a really big one, which is Triton. That was a Kuiper belt object at one time that ended up getting trapped in orbit and disrupting the whole system, which is a whole different story for a hopefully future mission. Yeah. Now, are any of these moons likely to have some of the complex features we've seen, you know, with cryovolcanoes, subsurface oceans, anything like that? In the field of astrobiology, we have really gotten interested in in this concept called ocean worlds, and that is moons of giant planets that are made up of water and rock. And they have kind of a rocky core and an icy shell with liquid water underneath that icy shell. And a big question of astrobiology is whether that liquid water could be a host for life because we know that liquid water is critical for the existence of life here on Earth. So there's a possibility that any of the five large moons of Uranus could have at one time been an ocean world and may maybe still is an ocean world. So why Uranus and not Neptune? I mean, they're both ice giants. They're both far away. They're both underserved with data collection. Why pick one over the other? We love both of the ice giants. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so a lot, it's, not, it's not an emotional connection problem. Okay, good. There is an emotional connection. For me, it's to each of them. And we can learn a lot about this class of planets from going to one of them. So we need to go to one of them to at least start to understand ice giants. But these two systems and planets are also very unique and different from each other. So eventually we need to explore both. The reason that the Decadal Survey recommended a mission to Uranus was mostly practical because it's going to be hard to get to Uranus. It is very far out there and it's going to take a long time to get there. Neptune is even farther away than Uranus. So everything you try to do to get to Uranus is even harder with getting to Neptune. And the fact is the community is tired of waiting. We were so excited by what we learned from Voyager that we want to prioritize time and get back now to one of these planets. And our best chance is to focus on a mission to Uranus so that this generation that is alive today will still be alive when the spacecraft arrives and our students are leading the mission. <laughs> Amazing. That's, that makes sense. So yeah, let's talk about the timing here. What is the timeline? Like when would a mission ideally leave the surface of Earth? When would it get there? When would we start to see data? The Decadal Survey recommended that the mission launch by 2032. This would provide a launch window that helps the spacecraft to get to the planet faster by first flying by Jupiter and using Jupiter's gravity to pick up speed on the way out. So that's the ideal time for building the spacecraft and launching. And the Decadal Survey 
provided a pathway to getting to that because that's actually in time scales of developing a major mission, a pretty short time frame. So we are ready to start right now building this mission. And they recommended not getting anything fancy, not looking for new technology, but using what we have to build this mission so that we can launch by 2032 and get there quickly. How quick is quickly? Quickly would be about 12 years. Arrival at 2044. Thank you so much, Kathy. And thank you. Kathleen Mont is a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. You can find a link to the commentary piece we talked about at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, with production help from Kevin McLean and from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.